Welcome to Defiance. Today I'm talking to Denise Ho, a Hong Kong singer, LBGTQI activist and pro-democracy campaigner. Denise was part of the 2014 Umbrella Movement in Hong Kong, a passive resistance to police brutality. Denise's stand with the protesters led to her being blacklisted by the Chinese government, effectively cutting off her income stream. In this interview, I talked to Denise about what happened in 2014, as well as the current protests in Hong Kong. But before we get into the interview, I need to welcome and thank my sponsor Kraken and their CEO Jesse Powell, who are helping make this happen. Kraken also sponsored What Bitcoin Did, my other show which is dedicated to Bitcoin itself, an act of financial defiance. Bitcoin was introduced to the world in 2009 by its pseudonymous inventor Satoshi Nakamoto as a response to the 2008 financial crisis. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. And Kraken is the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute, defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Good morning, Denise. Hi, good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm good, I'm good, thank you. So, I originally was meant to interview in Taiwan. Oh, Really? Yeah, I came out to Taiwan. I did three interviews, but you were really busy, and so we right, didn't get to fit yeah. it in. But in some Sorry. ways, <laughs> no, no, I, I think in some ways it's good that it's got delayed to today because something quite interesting has obviously happened in Hong Kong. Yes, it's not enough, right? But it's a start. Right, right, right. Yeah. So Hong Kong, we have been in the fight for freedom for the past almost five months now, like four and a half, and so it's it has not been an easy four and a half months. And it's especially devastating when you see these young kids in the front lines and they are doing their best to safeguard the city. But then the government, they are always responding with you know, very, very non-genuine promises. And so you know, I know that recently there have been uh, the, the, the withdrawal of the extradition bill, but that honestly is just not enough. Because this whole movement, it started with the extradition bill, but it was never only about the extradition bill. Of course. Yes, it's it's how the Hong Kong government has been only responding to the Beijing government and the way that the one country, two system model has been eroded. This promise made by the Chinese government, it has just become a void, basically. It's not what it was meant to be right now with Hong Kong government totally controlled by the Chinese government. Well, I think what will be very useful is to do some of the background. I know the background because I've been preparing and I also saw you perform in Oslo. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to say, I think you're fucking amazing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you. But I think not not everyone, especially maybe in the UK, will know who you Mm -hmm. are. So I think it would be useful to go through the background, what happened in 2013, and just go through it all. Okay. And obviously we, we have a slight connection in that I'm British. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong was under British rule at yes. one point. So yes. can you talk about your childhood? Because part of your childhood was in Hong Kong. Then mm-hmm. you moved to Canada. So yes. And let people know what you do. And, you know, because you're obviously a 
more right. than just a, a, <laughs> an activist. You're a musician as well. Right. Um, yeah, so I am a singer, fundamentally. And I was born in Hong Kong. I spent my earlier childhood in Hong Kong. And then I moved to, to Montreal, Canada with my family when I was 11. So that, that is actually something that is very characteristic of Hong Kong, being this British colony and then being handed back to China in 1997. Hong Kongers have always gone through these different waves of immigration, mm -hmm. which is actually a very sad thing uh, mm -hmm. when you think of it, because somehow we haven't found this connection to our home. And then every time there's something that worries people, people would choose to leave the city. But something changed in 2014 because of the umbrella movement. Can, can I just go back a step? Yeah, back in sorry. 1997, yeah. because I remember yeah. okay. the handover. I remember, because my mum made me watch it. Was, mm -hmm. was it Chris Patton was the yeah. governor? Yeah. So I remember it, but I wasn't fully aware of what it meant at the time. I was quite young. What did it mean to Hong Kongers at the time? Was there a lot of fear? Did you? Did people prefer to be under British rule? Was there a fear of having kind of Chinese right. rule, or was there any part of you, like you know, do you feel Chinese as well? Because mm -hmm. I don't know what it's like to be from Hong Kong. Right. Well, I think it meant very different things for different people. Yeah. Of course, there was this fear of being returned to this China regime mm -hmm. that we know has no rule of law and it has no respect for human rights, and so for us to be handed back to this so-called motherland, it didn't mean much to, to most of the people, okay. especially people from my generation, where we were born into the, the, the British colony of Hong Kong. But then at the same time, did we feel British? Not really. No, that, that is something that is in, a, in the background, but it's not exactly our identity. So I would say that Hong Kong has been going through this search for the Hong Kong identity okay. for maybe the past 30 years. And so with that, the handover, it probably frightened a lot of people. Okay. But then because at that time, the Chinese government and the whole China economy was rising. So for maybe five or six years after the handover, people thought it was actually working. Okay. You know, like with the economy, it was, it was going well, and we didn't see this erosion of the freedoms just yet. It seemed very normal. The things were going fine. The one country systems was seemingly working. But then 10 years, 15 years in, we started to see the changes happening. You know, with the, the incorporation of a lot of Chinese companies, with the, a lot of mainland Chinese coming into Hong Kong, buying up the houses, making the, the real estate go really up into the sky, the Hong Kong people started feeling the changes in the daily lives. You know, the, the prices, everything okay. was going up. And then also the freedoms, you know, the, the freedom of the media, the press. Okay. And the freedom of speech was starting to slowly erode. Yeah. So interestingly, I actually went to Hong Kong my first time this year, by the way. Okay. Um, it was very when, when was that? that was back, <laughs> it was before everything started. And what was quite interesting was 
the little bits of Britishness I saw, the buses, mm. right, right, the right, roadsides. Right, right. But I, I found it a very welcoming, very happy place. I really liked mm-hmm, it. Everyone mm-hmm. was really kind. But one of the things I wanted to find out is you said about the prices were going up and the mm-hmm. properties were being bought. Yeah. Do you think that was strategic? That was actually something that was strategically done? Or do you think that was just an outcome of handing back to Chinese rule? Well, I would say it was probably both. Okay. No, in the earlier days, you know, somehow we th- we even thought that you know maybe China is changing. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember in 2012 when I came out publicly as a, you know, a member of the LGBTQ community. I thought I would be blacklisted and banned in China, but then I was not. And okay. we even got this whole campaign going on in the Weibo, which is the, the Chinese version of the Twitter. And we got this LGBT campaign going on, mm-hmm. and it was not banned. So somehow we, in this you know, very special time, we thought that China maybe is making progress you know, in human rights and, and you know, how they were treating people. But then you know, 2013 happened, yes. 2014 the umbrella movement happened, and then it was downhill from then on. So just before we get into the, what happened in 2013 and 14, you'd obviously made a career for yourself as a singer. Right. So right. I'm quite interested, what took you from being a, say, say a, a musician to being an activist, at what right. point did it, you realize, okay, I have to do something here? Well, I I think you know, my coming out was one of the very important steps okay. because I made that decision mainly because I realized that our legislative system in Hong Kong was rigged to okay. be very pro Hong Kong government and very pro Beijing, and so it was the first time that. I realized that even though we had the right to vote for our legislators, a part of the legislative system, in fact, it was designed to be protective of you know, what the government wants. So I, I read that only two of the three committee vetted candidates who love the country would be able to run. Is that correct? Well, that is the chief executive. Yeah. And so, the, of course, that part is what uh, we are recently fighting for, right, you know, for okay. real universal suffrage. And of course, that is the, the, the root cause of all the problems that we are seeing in Hong Kong right now. Okay. Because we don't have a leader that is answering to the people, and we don't have a leader that is thinking or working for the people. You know, she or he is responding only to the leaders in Beijing. So okay. you know, that is a very, very dangerous thing, as we can see right now, because yep. you know, they would be pushing all these different laws and regulations ahead that would be favorable to the Beijing government, uh, namely the extradition bill that they were trying to push ahead in June. Were you living back in Hong Kong in 2013 and 14, or had you gone over to Hong Kong because of what was happening? Ironically, I returned to Hong Kong from Canada in 1997. In 97, you returned back? Yes. Ah. So the exact reason why my family moved to Canada, I returned in that same year okay. for my singing career. Which obviously went very well. Yeah, it was, it was okay. You know, it was okay in the former part of the, of the, the whole career. I think yeah. you're being modest. Right? <laughs> it seemed to have gone very well. Okay, so you were there. 
Talk me through what happened in 2013-14 right. and how you became central to this, because I saw the video of you being arrested, which was mind-blowing also, be people mm -hmm. being carried away. I read about the song you wrote. So can you tell me what happened? Because I'm really interested right. in that part of the story. Yes. So in 2014, the Beijing government released this white paper that they tried to push these uh, rules onto how the chief executive, which is the leader in Hong Kong, would be elected. So one of the, the main rules was that any candidate would have be, to be pre-chosen by the Beijing government. And so, no, in fact, it, is, it would be just a very fake election. Yes. So people were very, very angry uh, on that. And then it exploded into this 79 days of occupation on the very uh, main roads of Hong Kong. Okay. And that is the Umbrella Movement. But explain how the umbrellas became relevant, because it's a really interesting story. Yes. Well, I, I do think that is a very clear demonstration of how Hong Kongers is apt in finding solutions to problems. Yeah. So the umbrella movement was named such because you know, Hong Kongers, for the very first time in this very long history of Hong Kong, we were tear gassed and pepper sprayed by the police. And then so Hong Kongers responded very quickly and we used the umbrellas to block off all these pepper spraying and tear gassing. And so I think this term was coined by uh, one of the international press mm -hmm. and then it became the name of this whole movement. And you wrote a song? Yes, we wrote a song, me with another singer, Anthony Wong. Mm -hmm. The song name is Raise the Umbrella. Yep. So because th there is this double meaning to the to the word tang, which means raise and also it means support in Cantonese. Mm -hmm. So you know, that, that song was made in October of 2014 in the very beginning of the Umbrella Movement because we wanted to show support for the students mm -hmm. and the people who were on the streets. You've obviously found yourself at the forefront of the protests yes. um, by having a personality, by having a platform, by being who mm -hmm. you are. Were you at the time considering the risks to yourself with this or was it very just natural? Because obviously putting yourself at the forefront, you're putting yourself at multiple different risks. Mm -hmm. I made my decision to stand with the people um, actually on the very first day of the Umbrella Movement, which was the 28th of September, mm -hmm. where the police, they fired 87 tear gas uh, at the people. No, although right now, very sadly, this number is it, it doesn't mean much in 2019 because we are being tear gassed you know, in, in extreme amounts uh, on a daily basis. But then back then in 2014, it was very, very enraging to mm -hmm. the people because Hong Kong has always been known as this very peaceful yeah. and highly civilized society. And to be met with you know, such police brutality was unseen un and unheard of. Were these Chinese police or were these Hong Kong police? Hong Kong police. But are they Hong Kong police directed by Chinese rule? Well, we had a very pro-Beijing chief executive then, okay. CY Leung, and then you know, he was known to be this very ruthless leader and the, the way that he suppressed the people, it was probably his decision, but then because he was very obedient to the Beijing government. So 
he probably also had orders from above. Okay. And so I, I remember myself, I was at home on that day because as a celebrity and a singer in Hong Kong, we know that there are some things that you can or cannot say. If not, then you would be censored and blacklisted by the Chinese government. Which happened? So, yes, the critical moment for me was when the first tear gas was fired into the crowds of just really everyday citizens who because were... Because that's the start of violence. Yes. Yes. And so, for me, that was the last line. Okay. And I knew that I would probably be banned and blacklisted from then on. But then, you know, somehow, there are priorities in life mm-hmm. where you have to put your integrity before these personal benefits. Yes. So let's talk about the arrest, what actually happened on that day. I mean, I I still say, as I said earlier, the footage is mind-blowing, seeing people physically carried away. Mm -hmm. Somebody in a wheelchair I saw pushed away. Mm -hmm. I saw yourself being marched away. What happened there? It was a very difficult 79 days, I Mm -hmm. would say, because near the end of the movement, the enthusiasm and the energy in the beginning sort of died down with the Hong Kong government sort of giving us the silent treatment, waiting it out. And so uh, at the end, it was it was not a very good vibe that was mm-hmm. among the, the, the people. And so at the 79th day of the Umbrella Movement, there was talk about the police coming to clear the premises. And so me, along with about 140 protesters, which were more high profile, I would say, um, we decided to have a sit down mm-hmm. and to be arrested by the Hong Kong police. And so that was the decision that I made because you know, out of uh, this act of civil disobedience, we thought that we need to be sort of responsible for our actions. And uh, also there were you know, these student leaders who were among the people who, who chose to sat down. So also out of this sense of responsibility, I thought I needed to be with these people. Yeah. Were you charged or just arrested? I was not charged. Um, okay. I was arrested and then... Of course, you know, in the police station, they were trying to intimidate me, being this you know, celebrity. You know, they tried to, they tried to make me sign some papers and then say they're saying that oh, nah, they would release me afterwards. But then I was determined to be with the people, mm-hmm. and so I said no, and I I wouldn't sign the papers unless all the others were released, and so. Finally, I was the last one to leave to how, leave to police long, station. How long did they hold you there for? Uh, not very long, because probably they knew that if they detained us for too long, then the crowds outside would go crazy. Mm-hmm. So we were detained about you know, 12 or 13 hours, okay. and then they released us. Yeah. But a lot changed after that for you. Yes, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Uh, you became censored? Yes, I was banned, censored, blacklisted in China, and the effects also came into Hong Kong because a lot of the Hong Kong corporates were dependent on the Chinese market. So as a result, basically all the brands and businesses have kept the distance from me. And since 2014, 
know, I have lost all revenue that came from the China market and even in you know, any commercial revenue from Hong Kong brands and businesses. And so I had to find different ways to, to cope with the, mm-hmm. the new situation, these, these new challenges that I was facing. I, you know, instead of finding sponsors, corporate sponsors to my concert, I launched this crowd sponsorship campaign, which sort of like I chopped up the, the, the big sponsorships into very small pieces so that the local businesses, they could be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And in the end, there were 300 local businesses that sponsored me Great. and then coming up to a sum of about 3 million Hong Kong dollars. And so, no, I thought it was a very good social experiment yeah. you know, somehow for uh, you know, these people who were still very angry at the government for them to be a part of you know, this semi-entertainment social movement that is my concert. Yeah, because this the censorship you view is essentially financial censorship too, essentially, because yes, it comes yes. down your in- income stream and it shows how, I, I guess it's a warning to others. Yes, I, well, I mean, you, know, you, you never see this official list of people who are blacklisted You're in China. You're on it though. No, they, 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 the way that they do it, the tactic that they use is that they make an example of one or two individuals or one or two companies by you know, cutting off all their resources, cutting off all their revenue, and then the others would just start self-censoring themselves. So, so, you, so yeah. you're on a list. Um, With Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. So... Sadly, it is working. You know, mm-hmm. I have, you know, on top of not being able to get uh, corporate sponsorships, even a lot of my friends in the business, you know, they have kept their distances. And that fear is so great that they don't even dare to take a photo with me. Do you still consider them friends? Do you understand uh, what they're going through? Or do you well, think, you know... I understand, but I don't agree with it. Of course. Because, you know, the, the way that censorship and you know, these tactics work is that you succumb once yeah. and then you are forever in their palms. Mm-hmm. And that is even more scary than, you know, being uh, on the other side, being blacklisted, because, of course, you, you, you safeguard your career, but then at the same time, you sacrifice all your freedoms and your liberties in saying the things that you might be really thinking, and then you, you would be... It's 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 actually we are actually going through the second wave of political repercussions mm-hmm. where you know even someone merely liking a post on Instagram could be condemned and then they would have to apologize to the Chinese public saying that oh I am very supportive of the Beijing government and I condemn all the rioters in Hong Kong so it's actually very ridiculous when you think about it and it is very. George Orwell-ish, uh, the 1984 yes. book where... You speak. Yeah, when, when you see this sort of monitoring of everyone, uh, every word and every action is being surveyed. Wow. But I'm, you obviously wouldn't go back and change a thing. You wouldn't undo this because... No. Because... So right now, you're obviously a musician and an activist. Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself more of an activist now? Or do you feel more drawn to that? Or how do you split yourself between your music and activism? Right. Well, I would say that that is one of my biggest sacrifices. You know, time, mm-hmm. the issue of time, where 
I have to divide myself between these very different roles. But at the same time, you know, I have this intention of trying to merge these two roles into one, into you know, making this very hybrid version of a activist slash singer. Mm-hmm. And to give some context, it is actually very difficult to do so in the Asian communities mm-hmm. where people, you know, they, they see singers or you know, basically any art form as merely entertainment. And so, which is a very poor definition of the song and music and movies, because at the core of these art forms, it is the expression of the individual. Mm-hmm. And when the whole society is going through this trans- transformation of, you know, the politics going into your daily lives, there is no separating of politics and activism and you know these different art forms because when the government you know they have all these means to censor the news to delete stuff to twist the facts and to spread all these lies with their propaganda machine that is where the soft power of music and the arts come in because in this age of the internet you know there is no real censoring of a song Mm-hmm. You know, a song that goes into the public, they can try to remove it, but then, you know, it, it doesn't really go away. No. It exists in this, this cloud that is the internet. And anyone who tries actually can get a hold of any song or movie that they want to. Well, music formed around protesting is always very powerful. Like one of my favorite bands of all time is Rage Against the Machine. I think more than ever we need them back. Yes, I think it can be very powerful. Mm-hmm. So, has it changed your creativity then in your process of writing? Well, very, very frankly speaking, I have not had a lot of time no. to oh. put on my you know, music and my creativity, which I am trying very hard to to gain back that Mm -hmm. sort of space because I do think it is very important for me to safeguard this side of my very different roles. So we should talk about what's been happening recently in Hong Kong. So have you been there over the last few months? Yes, I I live in Hong Kong now. and although I only see you traveling the world. Yes, yes. (laughs) Well, I I, I spend a lot of time abroad, you know, uh, overseas in Mm -hmm. different countries because uh, I have invitations to speak in different international platforms. Mm -hmm. But I still try to, you know, put a chunk of my time in Hong Kong Mm -hmm. because I do think that being on the grounds is very important to 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 be in touch with the people because you know, the last time i left was i think early october no i i actually did the concert in london and then i came to new york so i've been away for about two and a half weeks and it is actually very difficult for me because to see all this action happening in Hong Kong and then not being there and then seeing the, the, the young people you know, being very exhausted and then very frustrated. You know, I, I sort of want to go back. Mm-hmm. But then also you see there is a higher threat right now on my personal safety because there have been a lot of 
outsourcing of violence to gangsters yes. and thugs, and then these attacks on high-profile activists, legislators, even uh, students. And so I know that I am one of the targets, but then still I I I, I still want to go back uh, and course. to be living in Hong Kong to be with the people. So we'll work through what's happened recently, but one of the things I, I have observed, and I'm, I'm kind of trying to theorize at the moment, I'm not sure if you've noticed over the last week, the number of protests around the world. We've had Lebanon, we've had Spain, we've had Chile. Yes. Like, there's a lot. One of the really inspiring things in watching what's been happening in Hong Kong is that there's a, it's a genuine fight for freedom. It's mm-hmm. a genuine fight for the freedom of the people. Yes. And it's, it appears to me that they are kind of winning. They are winning. You mm. know, they are, they are making progress. I'm wondering if this is inspiring other people around the world who are feeling like they're living in injustice, that actually we can stand up to the authoritarian regimes. Absolutely. We, we can have a, have a voice. Do you, th- do you think it's coincidence or do you think this is a... People are being inspired. I know it's a guess, really, but... Well, I think it is both. Mm-hmm. You know, some might be coincidences, but also for sure there is an inspiration in Hong Kong's movement, especially with our very leaderless and decentralized version of a, a, a fight for freedom. And then the way that we have you know, this motto that is be water, where this sort of tactic that um, is very fluid and uh, it is uh, very flexible and we use our creativity and our solidarity to you know, come in face of this biggest regime that is the Chinese government. And so you know, for this very small city of 7 million people, being able to stand up to this ruthless machine, for sure it is inspiring to other people mm-hmm. in different countries. And I hope that it would be you know, inspiring them to use different tactics. No, maybe not the same tactics that we can use in Hong Kong because you know, geographically and also you know, uh, the, the, the characteristic of different communities is different. But then this sort of mentality that you know, anybody can start this movement, anybody can be a leader, anybody can have the idea that can change the world, that is what is important and the most important message of this Hong Kong movement to the world. Okay, so this most latest movement started with the legislative putting forward the extradition uh, law. Right, right. Which had, was there any build-up to this? Was there any tension building up to this, or was this just a trigger on its own? Well, I would say it, it is a very big surprise to everyone, okay. including Hong Kongers, for us to be able to make this huge comeback from the very difficult five years that we had before that. So for some context, after the Umbrella Movement, the whole Hong Kong society went into this very low point where people were frustrated, disappointed, Mm -hmm. and some even checked out of all these activism because we thought that the Umbrella Movement was a failure and then we thought that we got nothing out of this three months of occupation. But then... With the extradition bill that actually triggered back all these emotions from the people with our chief executive trying to push ahead this bill despite all these concerns coming from the Hong Kong communities, I think it is just destined somehow to 
become this global movement which Hong Kong is in the front lines of? I think one of the biggest differences between now and 2014, this seemed a lot more violent and mm. it seemed to start out quite peaceful, mm-hmm. but the violence seemed to escalate it, which mm-hmm. was very surprising because, mm-hmm. you know, as you say, Hong Kongers are very peaceful people. How do you feel about right. the escalation of violence this time? Well, for one, I would like to you know put in context that um, a lot of the so-called violent imagery was taken out of context mm-hmm. first. And you know, with the propaganda machines of the Chinese government, you know for sure that they would be using these imagery to try to change the narrative into you know, something that would favor them. And behind that, you know, we have to ask the question, you know, why this highly civilized and peaceful community that is Hong Kong now, why have we in the course of four and a half months morphed from a two million people march that is totally peaceful without one piece of glass broken? Why have the people resorted to more aggressive means? Why do we feel the need to resort to these means? And so uh, I personally have been on the ground with the people a lot. And no, I think there are different levels to this question. Uh, first, of course, it is because the people have no one to protect them. Mm-hmm. You know, with the police force having full authority to do whatever they want with the people, with Hong Kong becoming this total police state, you know, we have to defend ourselves from the police brutality that has been going on at a ba- daily basis from early June. And at the same time, the as I said just now, the outsourcing of the violence to thugs and gangsters yeah. where we see... You know, these pro-Beijing people with knives and then sometimes driving their taxis into these crowds of protesters. Shocking. Yes, and also, you know, these undercover police mm-hmm. uh, who are disguised as protesters and then acting as agents provocateurs, uh, you know, provoking violence among the people and then at another instant, arresting other protesters around them. So, you know, it's a very mixed situation where, of course, there are protesters who are very angry and also very emotional on sites, very frightened even, and uh, using Molotovs or, you know, more aggressive means to, to fend off the police who would be charging at them, if not, you know, with the batons and tear gas and everything firing at head level. So, There is no easy answer to this Mm. question, but I do feel that the young protesters who are more aggressive now, they are not doing it only for the sake of venting. Of course. It is really something that they're doing to to defend themselves from the sort of police and the government's violence. One of the most amazing things, I think, has been watching the creativity of the protesters. Yes. I've never seen anything like this where new tactics are being designed, you know, new ideas. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen, obviously, the use of the lasers, which was great. I've seen the way where was they, they were trapping the smoke bombs with dry yeah. ice. Yeah. Like so many things like that. I was like, this is actually incredible. Yes. It's, uh, it was almost felt like guerrilla warfare. I've just been out to Vietnam mm-hmm. and I spent some time in the south and my children and I visited the, the tunnels and... And they were explaining the creativity of the 
the Vietnamese soldiers because they didn't have the money or the mm-hmm. uh, of the American war machine. So one of the things they were doing, they were recycling American bombs. Mm. And I, I just, I just, I love the creativity of of the protesters. It's amazing. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I mean, it's you know the the the, the way that they were. Um, Dealing with the tear gassing, uh, as you said, you know, with with sometimes with the traffic cones, yeah. they would put it on them, and then another person would be pouring water on the top little hole. Yeah. And then I think the most funny of all was when you know they the police went into residential districts, and then all these residents came onto the streets, and then a a dad I think he brought a steam fish dish with him, these uh, aluminum dishes, mm-hmm. and then. He put it onto the the tear gas, you know, just covered it up, and then it worked like a charm. And so, uh, also, you know, with with how the people are expressing themselves, also, you know, with the Lenin walls everywhere in different districts of Hong Kong, and then you also know about the Hong Kong anthem that was the song that was created by an anonymous songwriter. Mm -hmm. So, you know. I, I'm very happy to see that the Hong Kong people have learned from uh, the very mistakes that was in the Umbrella Movement, where back then the people were saying, no, we don't need arts and music and uh, different expressions because you know the, a fight is a fight. So that was the beginning of a, a, a very long learning process for Hong Kongers. And then at this particular fight in 2019, you see these young protesters, they learned from what failed the people back five years back. And now they are embracing different thoughts and different tactics, different creativity, which is essential to this very difficult fight that we have against the Chinese regime. Well, I'm very happy that something's changed today. I was myself very worried about how much this would escalate because we had reached the point where people were being shot. Mm-hmm. And once you reach that point, you don't know how far this can go. I mean, I was very young when Tiananmen Square happened, but it's vivid in my mind mm-hmm. what did happen. And were you ever fearful that it could really escalate to the point of something very serious happening? And like, a, I think you know where I'm going with this. Yes. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I was never too worried that they would deploy the troops like they did 30 years back Mm -hmm. at the Tiananmen massacre. Because for one, you know, China is trying to go into the world stage where they try very hard to pretend that, you know, they are this government that respects human rights, uh, who does not violate all these basic freedoms of people, which is ridiculous. But then they try. They try to put up this front. And so also at this age of the internet, where the truth always prevails, it would be very difficult for them to hide the facts. They, They are trying very hard, but then it is working sometimes, sometimes not. So for them to deploy the troops like they did 30 years back, that would be a disaster to Mm -hmm. this government also, not only to Hong Kong. So uh, basically, the the times where they moved the troops to the border of China and Hong Kong, it was mostly a a for show and for intimidation mostly. But then at the same time, I think what is more dangerous is the way that they're utilizing technology Mm -hmm. to twist the facts, to monitor people, to, to yes. do surveillance and to do facial recognition. And this is something I think 
even the democratic societies of the West should be alarmed and should be worried about because their powers is already here in the US, in UK, in Australia, in Canada. And it is already making a very alarming change to how all these different corporates and different celebrities even act. Well, this is where, again, creativity becomes important because we've obviously seen what's happened with the NBA Exactly. Recently. Yes. But we had the episode of South Park. Have you seen it? Yes, yes. <laughs> but that is a piece yes. of creativity. Yes, to, exactly. To, to challenge. We've also had Quentin Tarantino say he's not editing his version of his movie for the Chinese mm -hmm, market. Mm -hmm. So I think the more of that that happens, mm -hmm. the better. Exactly. Um, interestingly, so the, the extradition bill has been withdrawn, which is great. In my mind at first, I was like, okay, great. Will that lead to an end of the protest? But there are four other... So I've, I've got them noted down. There's yeah. other things so, so people are aware of. They're, you want for protests to not be called a riot. Mm -hmm. um, you want an amnesty for all uh, arrested protesters. Mm -hmm. Are some people still in jail then? Uh, some are charged. No, 2,600, more than 2,600 arrests have been made. I think about only four or 500 have been charged. Okay. So, but that also shows you how the police are you know, just going out of control. They're just basically arresting anyone that they want without any clear evidence mm -hmm. of them committing any crimes. And of course, one of the main demands that they could have easily responded to is the demand of an independent commission of inquiry. Yeah, into on, brutality. Yeah. Yes, yes. yes. And I've got the fourth one, just so people are aware. It's the implementation of complete universal suffrage as well. Right. So that's that's the four other demands that the people have. What, mm -hmm. what happens now? Do the protests continue? Well, I mean, that is something that only the government can really answer to. Because in this very leaderless movement, you know, there is no easy way out where... Uh, previously in the Umbrella Movement, when there were leaders, they would start so-called dialogue between these organizations and the government. But then it led to very empty promises. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, just just even as a, a PR stunt that they would do to, to try to demonstrate to the world that, oh, we are talking, but uh, no, they are not listening. So this time round, you know, it's not easy to have a dialogue because we don't have any leader in this movement. And so the only way for the government to bring an end to this unrest is for them to genuinely address these demands of the people. So uh, the extradition bill, as I said, it was never only about the, mm -hmm. the bill. It was about all this kind of corruption and the erosion of all the freedoms in the Hong Kong society. So I would say you know, one of the easier things that they could have done early on is to, to have this independent commission to inquire on the police brutality because that is what is enraging the people at the daily basis where the, the police, they just have full authority. And it is something that enrages the people every day, you know, more and more every day. And so I would say in the long term, of course, it is the political reform mm -hmm. uh, that we can elect our own chief executive. But then in the short term, that is something that they can do, but yeah. they are not willing to do for some reason. Well, who follows yeah. Carrie Lam is going to be very interesting because if it's another pro-Beijing right. person, you won't see right, any change. Exactly. It'll so, you know, I, I think 
we have to understand that even the government, whether it's the Hong Kong government or the Chinese government behind them, they are in a very critical situation also. You know, I would say that they are also very fearful of what might happen because with all the, the international attention and all the backlash that is coming from you know, all these self-censorship in the US and different communities, you know, China is also in a very difficult situation. And there is no more you know, brushing off these problems by you know, giving these fake promises to the public. You know, they really have to genuinely answer and address these problems. Okay. Well, I'm conscious of your time. You are a very busy person and I'm very grateful for you to give me some of your time today. Thank you two, so much. Two final questions I want to ask you. So firstly, how are you feeling right now about everything? You know, are you are you confident and positive? Are you tired? Are you mm. how are you right now? Well, there are ups and downs. You know, yeah. sometimes I, I would feel some sort of exhaustion from all that is happening. I would need a break sometimes. I meditate, you know, luckily, so that helps. And I am still somewhat optimistic in the very long term of things mm -hmm. because I do see this very important shifts happening in the world where, uh, say, for example, in the US, the Congress is pushing ahead the Hong Kong uh, Human Rights and Democracy Act, which would mean there would be sanctions and regulations on Hong Kong and China officials that would be violating all these human rights in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, as we said earlier, you know, all these movements happening in the world against all these different dictatorships and the people standing up to you know, these people in power. I think there is something there and we need to acknowledge that and to you know, sometimes when it gets very frustrating to pull back the whole perspective and you know, get a wider sense of, of everything. So you know, I try to work on getting this sort of message out, not only to Hong Kong people, but really people in the world to make people understand that you know, these dictatorships, these tyrants, you know, they could be overturned mm -hmm. um, or at least to make them respect you know, some of the, the, the rules that would you know, be, be universal to everyone else and not just have everything their own ways. And I think it's doable. I think you know, if we get enough people to understand and to awaken to the situation and for people in democratic societies to, to, to exercise this kind of pressure on their governments and to make them react to, to these situations, I do think that there is something there. That's fantastic. You've almost answered my second question. Okay. Because <laughs> what I was going to say, secondly, is that you know you're very obviously very focused on Hong Kong, but in you know supporting the Human Rights Foundation, you obviously are aware there's lots of similar situations exactly. around the world. Yeah. I mean, Alex Gladstein, who I think is amazing, mm -hmm. he um, very early on told me that half the world's population live under authoritarian regime. Mm -hmm. You know, we're against authoritarianism. We're against tyranny. So I've noticed, obviously, that your uh, campaigner for Hong Kong. I also saw your speech at the UN, by the way, which was brilliant. Thank you. But do you also are you drawn to the wider, like wider um, activism across the world now? Do you, are you feeling part of that? Yes, I do. I no, I am very grateful for the Human Rights Foundation for inviting me to the Oslo Freedom Forum because the first one I participated in was in May. And uh, so right before the whole movement in Hong Kong happened, and it was a eye-opener for mm -hmm. me 
because you know, before that, I didn't know that there was this community of activists from different corners of the world. And you know, I didn't realize that there could be power in this sort of solidarity. Because sometimes when you're in your own fight, you would focus too much on the details and then you know on how difficult it is for yourself. But then when you see the fuller picture where you know all these people are fighting for maybe different scenarios, but in fact the same cause, then you draw energy and you give energy in these very heartwarming communities. And that is also you know, something that I think the world also needs to understand is that you know, we cannot do it alone. We need to be in these fights together, where it is Hong Kong standing with Taiwan or with Catalonia, with Chile, with uh, North Korea even. You know, how, how can we unite all these different amazing people and then to be in this very global fight together? I don't think there's a better way to finish it. I think that's fantastic. Thank I'm going to say it again and say, excuse my language. I think you're fucking amazing. Honestly, <laughs> I think what you've Thank done you. is amazing. I find you very inspirational. You. I, like I said, I saw I, Oslo uh, in May was my first time. So I saw you perform. I'll keep an eye out for you in London. I think right. my sister would be a big fan of yours. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, in the future, if there's anything I can do for you, okay. if you remember me, if you ever want to come back on, you uh, let me know and uh, yeah, continue the, the good fight. And, you know, I know it's only one step today, but congratulations on what happened in Hong Kong today. You're obviously a very important part of that. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Denise. I do want to say a massive thanks to Denise for giving me an hour of her time as I know she is super busy. And I also want to say a massive thanks to the Human Rights Foundation for helping facilitate this interview. If you want to find out more about Denise or the current protests in Hong Kong, please do check out the show notes on defiance.news. Also, before we close out, I do want to say a massive thanks to my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange kraken puts the power in your hands to buy sell and trade bitcoin find out more at kraken.com which is k-r-a-k-e-n.com 